Welcome to Reenchanting, the podcast from Seen and Unseen, where we look at how we can reenchant a largely secular, material, post Christian world with the Christian vision of reality. I'm Justin Briley. And I'm Val Dindle. And today we're really excited to be joined by Lauren Windle, who is a journalist, author, speaker, and presenter. You've got more details, Mel. <laughs> Always got more details on Lauren. Um, so Lauren specialises in faith, recovery and love. Hey, we'd have graced the likes of Vogue, Huffington Post, Marie Claire and our very own Seen and Unseen, which I can't not mention. <laughs> and that's not to mention her books, uh, Notes on Love, Being Single and Dating in a Marriage Obsessed Church and the brand new Notes on Feminism, Being a Woman in a Male-Led Church. Mm. We're looking forward to hearing all about that, Lauren. And we're going to be speaking to you about a lot, your journey with addiction, recovery, faith, uh, the intersection between Christianity and feminism, as per your most recent book, and your perspective, you know, as a Christian in the church, and many of the pervasive questions being asked by today's culture, which you engage with so brilliantly with in your writing. So thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I feel like I'm on the starting blocks of something something pretty epic here, a marathon-like podcast yes. covering all issues. <laughs> yeah. This is your life, of Lauren Wendell. Oh, ready for the red book. I well, I feel like we've got an hour of Lauren Wendell. So I was like, what? squeeze everything I've ever wanted to talk oh, to her about into it. Squeeze me, Belle. I'm ready. <laughs> well, before I, I can tell you two are friends. That, that yes, this is sorry, not the first yes. time you've, let, you've met. Should clarify, somehow. we know yeah. each other. <laughs> and do you know what? I, Lauren, so kindly lends me her spare room for me to record this in London. So on behalf of Reenchanting, Lauren. Just to clarify, this isn't my spare room. You <laughs> this, this room I leave here. Stay in it. I leave here and, and I stay in a bed in okay, my house okay. and then come back. Thanks for the clarification. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Um, but before we move on to any of that, mm. our first question is always the same and it's always library inspired. And it's what are you reading right now? Right. I, I, this is a bit of a cheat because I've just finished it. Oh, it just counts. finished it. Yeah, go on. It's, wait, on the edge of politics. By Rory Politics on the edge. Politics, Politics on, on the edge. edge. Oh, yeah. As I said, I was like, how have I managed to forget the name? But it's by Rory Stewart. I'm mm. not big into, I read Alan Johnson's book, mm. um, This Boy a while back, which was amazing, but it's not about politics. It's about sort of his life and, mm. and what influenced his politics later. Um, so I'd say this is my first actual political memoir. And I just, I just lapped it up. Oh. I'm really, I, I don't know if he's great or I'm impressionable because I'm pretty convinced that he should be our prime minister now. It's a general consensus well, from people who have I, read that book. I think you're aware that he, he joined us earlier in this season. Right. Yes. Yes. Because on my way in here, I walked past him and I'm kicking myself for not asking for a oh, selfie. There you go. Absolutely Missed kicking chance. myself. Yeah. I know. Yeah. I know. My favourite part of that story, though, is that you thought it was him, went and asked reception and then said, I'm going to go out for a final look. <laughs> <laughs> did, but he'd already gone. gone either on the bus bit. or in a taxi or something. But just like that, poof, yeah. he had disappeared. So you've got oh, to catch Rory Stewart you while you can, you, really. You can. You, yeah. Much like Pokemon. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Um, I, we're going to talk about lots of things today, we not are, just Rory yes. Stewart and your great love of him, um, but also <laughs> your your work. Um, let's start with you and, and your story, though. Um, you, you have Christian faith, but tell us, how did that faith shape in any way your, your upbringing and so on? Yeah, my mum was and is a practicing Christian and she um, took us to church and my dad was less interested in 
faith and church and Christianity, he actually had a really terrible experience um, raised as a Catholic at a boarding school run by Jesuit nuns. And I think he just thought this, this isn't for me. So he ducked away, but my mum absolutely invested really strong in her faith, great prayer life, took me to church, introduced me to all of it. And, and church just wasn't for me. Um, I definitely got, I'd like to say as much as a child can, the God thing. And I liked the idea of it and I prayed and I, and I thought, believed I was hearing from God at times and, and things like that. And I got quite excited about that element of faith. But Christians did not appeal to me particularly. Mm. I just, I, I found them, I found them judgmental. I was exposed to, at a distance, um, you know, husbands who who were physically abusive towards their wives for for not being sufficiently obedient uh, church leaders leaving their families for members of the congregation youth leaders copping off with with girls as soon as they turn 16 and it just built a picture to me of an environment and a world I, I had no interest in being a part of and then on top of that I felt the weight of of the rules mm of being a Christian, you know, it's particularly as you go into sort of teenage years, you are a successful Christian teenager if you're not mm. drinking, taking drugs or shagging anyone. And that's it. No one talks about your character or your personality mm. or your pride or your humility or anything like that. It's just tick those three boxes and your Sunday school teacher <laughs> is nailing it. And actually it just, it just wasn't for me. So as soon as I was given the opportunity to stop going, I stopped, um, you know, some people would say that that created a sort of vacuum into which all kinds of things could flow. But I, you know, a 13 year old growing up in London, not in the areas that at that time were gentrified, they certainly are now. So it was, it was a different lifestyle. It was a different time. It was um, pretty economically deprived and we drank cider sitting on park benches. And that's just what, that's just what we did. Um, and, and that's, what really got me, I felt quite sort of socially anxious. So when I was introduced to alcohol, which was really easy to get hold of when I was like 13, 14, it got difficult when I was about 17 because the legislation changed and mm. Challenge 21 came in. So suddenly people were being um, held far more accountable for what they were serving. But at 13, you could walk into any shop and just order mm. what you wanted and, mm. and, and they'd serve it to you. So we just drank loads. And um, I found that it was a great, not solution, but distraction from social anxiety. And I, you know, we use terms like social anxiety now and I speak to kids now and I'm like, oh my goodness, it's like, it's like I'm chatting to a therapist or reading pages from The mm. Body Keeps a Score. I don't know who teaches them these phrases, yeah. right? But I would have just been like, just been like, oh, I feel stressed or not even, mm. you know, when mm. it comes to those things. Yeah. Um, so yeah, alcohol alcohol was a, a decent solution. I didn't really no one offered me any others. No one mm. talked to me about about what it was to feel uncomfortable in social situations, to be desperate to be popular, to be constantly worried about what other people were thinking of you and saying about you and and how to target and and challenge that and and to feel at peace. So mm. enter enter booze. Yeah. Enter booze. And you you gave a TED talk. What year did you give your TED talk? Do you remember? I gave my TED Talk in 2018. In Belle. 2018. <laughs> in 2018, you gave a TED Talk called Lessons a Drug Addict Can Teach You. Yes. And where you speak about, I think in, in that, the narrative starts when you're 22 and you had your yeah, first line of cocaine. It but does. 
what you're saying is actually it's not like that happened in a vacuum there was a trajectory to that but I've just given you the origin story you have you've given (laughs) us a prequel to your TED talk um can you tell us a little bit of that story and what was going on for 22 year old Lauren Mm, yeah so um I drank alcoholically to the extent that I could as Mm. as a young person with not that much alcohol and around sort of at home or anything and also not that much money even though I could buy it I I didn't have a job or anything so there was only so much around um but then sort of went off to university student loan what an exciting time for any young person (laughs) been on a budget until that point um you know and then and I was with a long-term boyfriend we were together for three years from 19 to 22 and we drank really quite heavily together. And then I got to the point where um, we had broken up. I was like, well, what's, you know, what's, what's, what have I got really? Mm. I didn't have any kind of faith. I didn't have the relationship that I put so much of my life and effort into. Um, really liked drinking though. And I got a job in hospitality working for a restaurant group in the city and I was running events and, and running marketing campaigns. And suddenly I really believed my own hype and thought I was quite fabulous and, you know, wined and dined rich people. And then suddenly someone offered me a line of cocaine and I'm like, well, this is an upgrade from my <laughs> white lightning mm-hmm. on ones mm-hmm. with common, you know? Mm-hmm. So, um, so I took it. And things spiralled really quickly for me. And there's a lot of people, um, particularly those, I would say, without a personal connection to addiction, who who see addiction as weakness and, uh, and moral failing. And I do get that. And I also see that the tide is turning in the way that we talk about addictions and things like that. Mm. What I would say is that whilst your initial choice is yours... And it really is yours. You know, you guys, I don't think are teetotal. You've had a glass of wine at some point in your life, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you've made that choice, right? Just as I made a choice to take cocaine. But by the time I realised how important it was for me personally to make a different choice, to make a better choice, my ability to do so from my own free will was completely gone. And ideally, in the life of a, of a moderate drinker, I, w- I could say I'm a moderate drug taker, but I am of the opinion that we're we're better off in a sort of abstinence space when it comes to mm-hmm. <laughs> when it comes to drugs. Um, but in the life of a moderate drinker, by the time they realise that things are going a bit wrong and alcohol isn't serving them, we see it all the time now. People feel socially anxious and things like, and they stop, mm. and that's great. But that's not that's not what addiction feels right. like. Mm. Uh, and. <clears throat> So what was addiction like? Because I guess a lot of people do think, well, yeah, there's people who exist who just sort of take the odd line of cocaine. It yeah. sounds like you're, you not were like, that. actually not, not that <laughs> no, version. No. Um, so what, what did that look like? Did, was it just a kind of dependency thing in the end that yeah. you needed a line to get up in the morning? What, what was the kind of... No, not to get up in the morning. And well, I guess there's there's different elements and that and I could this could be the whole podcast, me talking about the physical, social, mental, emotional, spiritual impact Mm. of that addiction and outworking of it in my life. I guess practically, like scheduling wise, I was pretty much either high or on a come down. Um I remember having a, a boyfriend for like three months in that time who who also took a reasonable amount of drugs and he said he had never seen me either sort of sober or not hungover. There was no sort of neutral ground. Mm. It was either recovering in order to keep going mm. or or sort of 
ploughing on. Um, I mean, in terms of sort of drug use, what started off as once or twice, maybe weekend, maybe once in the week, was was turning into four or five nights a week. Mm-hmm. Um, it was it was me not making plans to meet someone for breakfast or for a coffee pre midday because in all likelihood I would still be awake from the night before Mm -hmm. it was me not turning up on time for work it was my alarm going off at 7 30 to tell me to get up have a shower and go to my job but I'm still doing cocaine off of a club toilet Mm. and and actually it's funny because there are loads of people in the media who talk about cocaine addiction. You know, there are loads of celebrities. Back when I got sober, it was just Russell Brand mm. who spoke about anything along those lines. But there are there are so many people who speak about it now. But I, I, they don't go into the level of nitty gritty that you would need to to really associate it with the desperation mm. that, mm. It, that it is associated with, yeah. you know. And I remember one friend to me being like, oh, Hun, it's actually kind of fabulous. It's a bit Lindsay Lohan. And I- <laughs> There's a kind of a ro- almost, yeah, a romanticism that often gets given to that. And, yeah. And what that I'm sure hides is actually just the oh, absolute it- squalid nature And there's of it. this hierarchy within addicts as well, which I, I is infuriates mm. me is that the cocaine addicts mm. think that they're better than oh the drinkers you know yeah, quite sitting there exactly <laughs> yeah. oh they're just they're just knocking back their booze getting the shakes but then obviously the drinkers mm. think that they're better than say heroin addicts who think that they're better than say mm. crystal meth addicts right. and then everyone's mm. looking down on porn and sex addicts right. and you're like come on guys we're the same mm. we just came across yeah, a different yeah. crutch at a different yeah. time yeah. you know like it could mm. be any of those things we're all liable to allow something to take too big a place in our lives. And there's, um, it's too long for me to have remembered it all the way through, but there's a quote from the Ragamuffin Gospel, which is Brennan Manning's book, which is so good. And it's like, it's basically like, I can be addicted to anything, to golf, to gossiping, to cigarettes, to food, to to pride, to success, Mm. to, you know, all of this stuff. And actually like, we're, we're living constantly um, speaking in Christian terms, on a scale of idolatry. Mm. And right at the top, you've got me with with drugs and alcohol. Mm. Right at the bottom, you've got me with... Actually, never going to gambling. Like, I'm quite happy mm. to, if someone's having their birthday at the dogs, to turn up, you know, spend £20, and then that's, that's me done. Yeah. You know, some people think that that's yeah. completely unfathomable, mm. you know. But and then, and then there's, like, the midway, me with my phone. I'm definitely too close. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Up that mm. scale of idolatry well, than I. That's, that's you know, probably close to home for a lot of people, you know, these days. That there, there are lots of types of addiction that oh, exist yeah. out there. Yeah. Um, where did God show up in all this eventually? Oh gosh, absolutely ignored me. No, Jake. <laughs> God, who? Um, no, like I. There were definitely times when, in the sort of depths of it, when I wasn't washing, when I wasn't communicating with my friends properly, when I was just so desperate and alone and staying up late into the night. I can remember turning on um, like a Christian radio station, one of those ones on Freeview where you've got to keep going up the channels until, you know, you've gone way past babe station. You're, you're like... You're in the uh, thousands yeah, at this point. Yeah, you're in yeah. the thousands. No one even knows it's there, no. but it is. Um, and I like found a Christian channel and I was like, right, God, if you're there, there'll be a sign. And there wasn't. And I was like, well, 
and that's that then, yeah. you know, <laughs> dust that chapter <laughs> off and back it away. Um, but I eventually, when things really got bad, um, told my sister what mm. I've been doing and she's the prodigal one who stuck around and got no credit for it. And I'm the one who like gets the fanfare for sort of messing everything up and then coming back. And um, she was phenomenal. I spoke to her. It was after work on a Friday. I was supposed to have gone into work. Uh, I didn't. I had sat up all night taking um, cocaine with an ex-boyfriend who I'd already broken up with. But when I realised I didn't have anyone to sit with me, sort of summoned him back mm. in a very careless sort of way. Um, but he, he liked drugs too, so he didn't complain. And then we sort of sat up taking the taking drugs till 7 30 8 o'clock alarm goes off I call my boss I say I'm high I'm not coming and that was it and it was clear to the people I worked with that I was getting increasingly out of hand so I think that she recognized that I was unwell rather than completely unruly mm. um but obviously that is an unacceptable practice to do as an employee. So she said, okay, sleep it off. I'm going to mark you down as, as ill today. Mm. And then I'm going to call you at six o'clock and we'll have a conversation. But before she did, I called my sister and said, as soon as you finish work, can you come round? And I just said, I really, I need help. I'm like, she knew I drank a lot. She knew I partied a lot. You know, this is back before anyone thought through what they put on Facebook. You know, we we were reasonably transparent about sort of being out at 3 a.m. on a Wednesday. So she was fully aware. Um, and she, so she moved me out of my flat, which I lived in on my own because it didn't feel particularly healthy for me to be in that that space my sort of drug den of iniquity ripped away <laughs> from me and then she um she took me to um church on the Sunday I didn't really get it I thought that they were nice they were talking mm. about that street pastor thing where they mm. go and pray oh, yeah. over drunk people and I was like what losers no one's gonna want that you know people are gonna think like what are you doing here I have now learned more about the ministry and I think it's it's an incredible yeah. ministry yeah, cool. but a, as a sort of drug addict yeah. who fell out of clubs regularly could just picture myself going no so sort of pushing them <laughs> off but um but no I have I've since changed my perspective uh, but then I just thought like oh that's nice they do good stuff don't they off I go home didn't think much more about it and my sister was gutted because she was like you know you, you she she came she agreed to come mm. she mm. showed up god why aren't you why aren't you grabbing her mm. and then um and then she made me quit my job. So I had some time to reflect on like what I wanted. She literally, she worked in HR at the time. So she just sort of chucked my name into a template, said sign this and hand it in. And on Monday I did because oh. I just didn't really think I couldn't because mm. she was quite forceful about it. So I chose something else. I moved out of London, got away from drug dealers and party friends. And, and that kind of went okay for a while. But I quickly found other sources of drugs in this new place. Um, and then it was my friends who sat me down and said I needed to do something about it. And they told me to go to a recovery group. And I thought, well, that's going to be, I thought I was annoyed. I thought that they'd overstepped, but I did think like, if this will buy me some time, if they'll mm. get off my back a bit, then I'll do it. And what excellent people watching, you know, you've seen the <laughs> films, you've seen the, the TV shows like, hi, my name's yeah. Lauren and I'm an addict. Anecdotes for the rest of your life. Oh, the the yeah. tales I could tell yeah. down at the pub after a couple of those meetings, you know, and that was my mindset. And I literally, and I'd say this is when, 
there are loads of times where you can see sort of God was maybe knocking at the door a little bit. Mm. Um, but I'd say from that moment, that's when I was like, ah, he's come for me. Because mm. <laughs> I like pushed my, I was in France, I moved to Paris and I pushed my ear up against this big old door in this ancient, like gorgeous building that had been converted into a community centre. And I just heard them speaking French. And in theory, it was a bilingual meeting. So you can go there and speak English, but no yeah. one was. So I was like, oh, this is, I'm in the wrong place. And I turned to walk down the stairs and there was a lift door. Every Paris building has lifts. And the door opened and this woman stepped out, said something to me in French. And I was like, oh, no, it's just, I'm in the wrong place. And she was like, are you here for the meeting in English? And I said, yes. And she said, you can sit next to me. And she just scooped my arm and walked mm. me through that door. Wow. And when I walked in, usually if you go to a drug support meeting, it tends to be um, women find it hard to find a group that isn't dominated by men. It just it, They just are. And often men who are sort of 50 plus, right, which is why a lot of those groups have a women's group, you know, and also some of the things that come up are different and yep. and you want a sort of maybe a space where there are men's groups as well. It's not exclusively, but um, but those sort of segregated environments are actually quite helpful for some of the things that come up um, for women in recovery. Um, but I walked into this room and it was all bar one women in their 20s who were about three months sober. So it was mm. just within mm. touching distance mm. for me. Mm. Um, and they took me for lunch afterwards and they, they told me their stories. And having thought I was going there t as a sort of, you know, distant observer, mm. I just cried. Mm. I, I heard people say things that I also felt, but I had never heard said out loud. And when you are in a place where you feel so alone, so desperate, so isolated, when you think that there is, that this is what life will be like for, for you from now mm. on. And basically it's a choice of keep going as you are or die. And mm. you think it probably be better to die because you're going to die anyway, but you'll have to go through 40 years of agony to get mm. there. Mm. And that's... It, you know, and it's scary to say things like that out loud. And people feel like when they're actually in that place, they literally can't say it out loud because someone's going to activate some sort of panic station and you'll have, you know, an ambulance outside your door yeah. or your, your mum on the phone, you know, mm -hmm. like whatever. They'll, you know, people people naturally have to act on on those kinds of statements. But in that space, you can kind of say it and people mm -hmm. go, oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. And that is yeah. such a relief, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. The 12 steps mm. are so interesting for so many reasons, mm -hmm. um, not least how incredibly effective they are. It's incredible. But um, yeah. also they're so contingent. So many of the steps, I don't know how many, but I'm guessing the majority, are totally contingent upon there being a higher power, there mm. being something bigger than the individual mm. and therefore something more powerful than the individual's mm. addiction. It underpins every step. I think it's specifically mentioned in three. Right, okay. Off the top of my head. Yeah. There, there are some people who've literally memorised that book and who can tell you inside out. So yeah. if I've got that sure. completely wrong, then I'm sorry. But yeah, yeah, I've worked the steps three times and I think that okay. they are incredibly effective. I, I think that... 
there is some pushback against Alcoholics Anonymous and 12-step based programs which are inspired by Alcoholics Anonymous, of which there are now many. Okay. And then there's loads of offshoots. You've got your OA for overeaters, GA for gamblers, wow. SLA for sex and love addicts, NA, MA, CA. Mm. You know, there's there's absolutely millions. But And, and there is pushback, particularly um, because you can't have an organisation that size that doesn't make mis- I mean... We we go to church, <laughs> you know. Yeah, that doesn't know make well. mistakes, yeah. and, um, and and mistakes have been made at times in its history. And there are individuals who get mm. it wrong. Mm. But sure. actually, that framework, which was based on the Christian faith and based mm-hmm. on on a biblical principles, yeah. um, and has since had specifically Jesus and, and Christianity stripped out of it, yeah. is absolutely phenomenal mm. in many ways. It's not the only path to recovery, yeah. though. I don't believe that people who don't go back to AA will not be able to get sober, and I think that's a really damaging mm-hmm. rhetoric. Sure. Um, but for people who invest in it, I, I truly believe it works. Mm. Yeah. So from both your personal experience, but also your expertise, because you are an addiction specialist as well. Um, <laughs> just putting that in there. You know your stuff. What is it about this knowledge, this acknowledgement of something higher, a higher power? Um, I suppose if you're a Christian going in, you'd call it God, but they mm. don't, do they? Um, what? Why is that so important to those steps or to recovery in general, do you think? Um I mean, there's something mystical about faith, isn't there? Mm. So when when the 12 steps were designed and worked by the the sort of first 100 people to go to Alcoholics Anonymous, and they are the people who contribute to the writing of the book, which they use as, a, as their sort yeah. of core text, um, Christianity was just given 1930s America. Mm. Or, you know, you just, everyone went to church what was in people's hearts was a different matter. But culturally, um, of course, something like this would incorporate a spiritual element. Um, it's it's funny how it still feels relevant today and no one's updated that textbook. It's still, there's a chapter um, addressing the wives because it's obviously only a, a male problem. Right. Oh, and, wow. <laughs> yeah, wow. And, um, and it's, you know, and it is, it's, it feels... It feels a little bit like you're sort of been transported into a really grimy offshoot of Mad Men at times, <laughs> you know, sure. where they're like talking about the stuff that that the gentlemen get up to when they when they go travelling on their sales calls and things. And you're like, okay, yeah, got it. But actually, like people don't want to mess with it. People feel very pr- protective of right. it, even though it's very dated, yeah. because it works so well. And as a as a consequence, they haven't stripped out what is just biblical effectively within it and and why it works i i could venture a guess and there and plenty of people who um who have worked this kind of program or something similar i'm sure would have their own perspectives on it but i think that without it i don't know how you'd reinforce the submission required Mm. for effective recovery because the, the foundation of it is that I'm not the higher power. And if you believe you are, 
then you're kind of trapped in this, you effectively have the final say, you control everything and the stress of that, like, my goodness, yeah, mm. let's drink. Mm. Like, yeah, because I suppose mm. what you said earlier about by the time you get to that point, you don't have the willpower mm. to make the right decision. Yeah. That was way back there. So then if you're believing that you are the ultimate yeah. power of your own life, yeah. you're thinking... Oh, if well, then I'm that's doomed. it. You know, you've seen how it happens, how mm. it works when you are in charge of the decisions. Right, yeah. You know, like if I was CEO of my life, the board would be calling a meeting, you know, and that's <laughs> yeah. and that's it. But it's 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 good to it positions you in a place of service, in a place of submission. It, it positions you in a framework that is so much better and it gives you something to trust in that isn't just your own free will and your mm. own willpower and things like that, you know. And, and actually, I think that that is incredibly valuable. I think that everyone should do the 12 steps. <laughs> I really do. I think yeah. that the sort of process of, and that's what the TED Talk was about, basically, mm. lessons mm. a drug addict can teach you, yeah. is, you know, the process of identifying that, that you kind of make a mess when you're left to your own devices, mm. that it's, it's valuable to submit to a higher power, to hand over to that higher power, to take stock of where you've been wrong, you know, where you've made a mess of things, to identify what the underlying character defects are that led you towards wanting to sort of compensate and make those decisions or find love and attention in that way or, or bury yourself in that thing. You yeah. know, we could all do that. Yeah. Then to hand those character defects to a higher power, go out there and say sorry when you've made a mess, mm. which is agony, but genuinely mm. the best thing wow. you can do. Again, such a biblical principle. Because yeah. like, you have to do that quite literally in one of the steps, don't you? When you, is in, you actually have in, to like, say the word sorry. Go yeah. up to someone's face yeah. and say the word sorry. Oh, yeah, it's not like, theoretical. You can't just be no. sorry. You <laughs> no. have to express But you know how sometimes sorrow. you can just kind of like, I don't know, you can kind of reconcile situations in your mind and you can kind of like dodge it a little. You don't get that option in this oh, process. Yeah. Like you're, oh, yeah. you're, you're doing it. Oh, when you, I remember my sponsor talking me through how to make amends to someone and she was like right scenario someone comes and calls you a bleep 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 bleep, bleep something really rude right yeah. and then you slap them yeah <laughs> um and then I say to you why have you slapped them you know what's what's going on here and you go well they called me like I don't need to know what they did you're only responsible for your side of that interaction, there may be things that prompted or goaded you, but ultimately you need to be a person mm -hmm. who mm -hmm. does not react mm -hmm. in that way when somebody treats you badly. So that's it. So you go up to that person, you say you, and what's really good about this as well, I still use this framework to apologize. You do it promptly. You explain what you're apologizing for. You actually apologize. You don't just say like, yeah, I've been thinking that was a bit bad. You say the words, I'm sorry, yeah. or I'd like to apologize to you for this. Mm. And then you say to them, is there anything else that you would like mm. to bring up that, that maybe you feel I haven't addressed? Wow. And you hear them out. Yeah. But you do that from a place of humility. And that is, you're no better, but you're no worse. You apologize once and you mean it. You don't mm. grovel. You hold mm. your head up high. Their response to it is hopefully positive, but actually irrelevant because mm. you have done what you know to be right. And that is it. Yeah. And, and then that's you done. It, it's an amazing story. And I guess it was a long path to recovery. And 
I, I'm guessing in some ways it's you never stop learning the lessons and, and mm. so on. It's a lifelong process. But I think there is a sort of a particular day you mark each year. Is that right? To celebrate oh, yeah. recovery, to celebrate sobriety. <laughs> Tell us about the birthday parties and what yeah, you do to big market. Time. I um, subscribe to the idea that nothing should never, nothing should ever knowingly be under celebrated. Uh-huh. <laughs> oh, I love that. So um, <laughs> if you saw my house right now, Christmas has vomited all over everything and at that's the time like of recording it. we're in december and oh, wait, running sorry. up to christmas that's fine that's fine but but uh if you saw my house right now easter has <laughs> eggs everywhere oh relentless no um she want me to answer no that no again? you can keep you can keep going you can keep going um so 22nd of april is my sobriety date and um, I got sober in 2014. So I'm coming up to, um, and you never round up in recovery. I am nine years and a half or so. Um, but if I were rounding up, I would be 10 years, which I'm not. Right. But I am I am very much looking forward to That's continuing huge. my journey of recovery. Into um, the 10th year. Yeah, yeah. To, to hit that decade, which yeah. is a bit wild, really, because it, it makes me feel quite old. Um, but I did get sober pretty young. Right. Um, I I got sober at 25 and I'm now 35. And I say that because if I don't make it clear, people are sitting there doing the maths rage and they stop listening to me. And they're like, gosh, well, I want to age that person. And they're like, well, she, she went to school in that yeah. year. So Just save everyone like, a lot of time. Yeah, exactly. You don't have to Google it. You don't have to DM me. I'm 35. And um, so I celebrate in, in quite ridiculous ways. And it started off with like, oh, I'll just have my friends over for dinner. Or um, first time we had a black tie dinner um, where everyone just wore long, long dresses. And, mm. and yeah exactly and, yeah. and we just made a fuss and over the years I've done various things sort of afternoon teas and stuff I would say I'm getting more ridiculous <laughs> last year my ninth birthday I marked with a pillow fight Excellent. where every, it was BYOP and um, bring your own pillow pil- yes right. of course I mean okay. I don't have all those <laughs> there was about 30 of us <laughs> who went to a green on an estate just around the back of my house and then my six-year-old nephew and five-year-old niece captained a team each naturally um, and basically just talked through strategy um, best practice when it mm. comes to pillow fights and then we just set everyone loose on each other <laughs> And um, unfortunately, a few feathered pillows were casualties right. of the battle. And then a nearby neighbour came and shouted at us. So as we <laughs> were all Christians, we went and got a rake and did quite a sort of performative cleaning up <laughs> operation afterwards. But yeah, oh, it was great. And this year I am going big and going to Sicily. Ooh, I know. Wow. Well, actually, no, that's a lie. I should start by saying I'm going big and I'm running the London Marathon, which is the day before yeah. on the 21st of April. And I'm doing that for the Forward Trust, which is a addiction charity. And then my prize for both 10 years sobriety <laughs> and so the silly. most horrific <laughs> exercise feat anyone could ever do will be a week in Sicily, which I'm really looking forward to. Amazing. There are, like you said earlier, there are many, many sober voices now and, and voices from people who are in recovery. Mm. And that's such a wonderful thing. But yours is a particularly enchanting one in that your recovery and it's laced with celebration and it's it's not it's not like you you gloss over the hard parts or the struggles mm. you're also really wise in in pointing those out and highlighting them for people who have ignorance in all sorts of directions but 
you really enchant um, sobriety and recovery. And, and yeah, like I say, it's all framed with celebration and joy. And, and I think I've seen you use this phrase where you, um, you gave up everything for one thing and now you've Mm. given up one thing and you've got everything. Mm. And I just think that's just so beautiful. Um, another thing that seems to be a non-negotiable for you is community. Oh yeah. Yeah. Which kind of goes hand in hand with the celebration, the pillow fights, all of this sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You've got to have people to pillow fight. You've got to have people to pillow fight. (laughs) Yes. That is why individualism sucks. Put that on a t-shirt. Just trying to battle yourself with a pillow. Oh, I know. I I can imagine though that in the days when you were in the drug scene, there was a sense of community there that it was kind of, it gave you something of a sort of place to kind of find people and feel like you were no it's not like organized crime i've been watching a bit of the old you know mafia documentaries and stuff and it really feels like those guys have got some sort of like honor among thieves and Mm. and sort of conduct and and family thing oh it's really every man for themselves in addiction yeah Yeah. like Mm. you're just there pretending you haven't got a gram in your back pocket because you don't want to have to share it sneaking up to the toilet taking your own going back taking some of someone else's you know we all Mm. no one's kind to each other everyone has got one objective and Mm. it's nice to do that with someone sitting next to you but if it means less drugs happy to go alone okay yeah so community is something you really discovered in that it's sense. new post, to me <laughs> post, post yeah, I would say yeah, yeah. yes mm. yeah. um yeah and actually community having had that experience of church that I did not enjoy at all it was church that showed me community um mm. because when I first came back and that was just after it was a few days after the 22nd of April 2014 when I went to that first meeting and and then I sort of got into this higher power business with the whole 12 steps and was like, oh, better work that out, walked into a church. And I stuck around because of the community. One church service and and then they brought me into sort of women's Bible study. It's not enough to get you getting it. It's not enough to get you like thinking like, oh, this Jesus guy's worth showing up for. So I just showed up because they were nice Mm -hmm. and kind and, you know, sort of those what I didn't know at the time is what we're talking about here is like sort of fruits of the spirit. And I felt it from them, but I wouldn't have had, I wouldn't have known that that yeah. was even a, a biblical mm. construct. I didn't have a Bible, you know, mm. which the vicar's wife was appalled by <laughs> absolutely scrabbling around to get me one. <laughs> My Bible still has a, it's dedicated to her daughter on her graduation. Oh, <laughs> just, I like, love it. just take this. She Repurpose. won't mind. She won't, Sally won't mind. <laughs> <laughs> I she love probably it. had plenty of Yes, yeah, I mean... <laughs> Child of a vicar, yeah, exactly. coming out of her ears. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, and and actually that community was really important to me and it's something that I've been very proactive in nurturing and growing, particularly when I came back to London because that was all when I was still in Paris. Um, yeah, and, and actually I think, it, I think I've probably kicked up my efforts post-COVID, mm. um, but I do a lot of bringing people, particularly Christians, together um, and it really matters to me. But actually even sort of, I, I find it frustrating when we talk about sort of like networking and entertaining and, and the things that are kind of a bit bells and whistlesy mm-hmm. and also really only accessible to you if you have the space, the money, the, you know, the capacity. Mm. If you're in sort of crisis you, and you want to be a part of a community, you don't throw a dinner party or go to a networking event, do you? Right. Mm. Sure. But actually, you know, we, we see sort of 
that as hospitality. We see mm. the the sort of elaborate inviting of people mm. over and taking their coat and what playlist should we put on? And oh no, we'll grab the place. You just sit. Mm. Are you having tea or coffee? You know, all of that. Mm. When actually that's entertaining. Mm. It's not hospitality. Hospitality is that I have a key safe within reach of my front door that about 20 people have the code for mm. and they can literally just show up. Mm. And if there's food in the fridge, just just chuck it in the microwave. I'm not putting your dish in the dishwasher. You are. Mm. And we can battle it out over what goes on the telly and you <laughs> can't tell me off if I sit and play Candy Crush while we watch it. <laughs> that is hospitality. That's yes. community. That is creating an environment where people don't feel like a guest. They feel like they're home. Yeah. And mm. that I think is so important, mm. both for single people, which I researched a lot when I was writing the, the yeah. first book, Notes on Love. And, and that became very apparent that there were lots of people in the church who were single and lonely. And I don't yes. think that as a Christian, it should, those yeah, two should come absolutely. together. Mm. Yeah. Um, and, and, yeah. and that is a, a reminder to the church that it, it, it often fails in that way. Mm. Um, it, it, they can do kind of nice entertaining, as you mm. say, but to call somewhere home is a bit different. It's, yeah. it's about having mm. a key to the front door. And that very much is not on church leaders. Yeah. Yeah. They can prompt us. Yeah. They can remind us. They could, you know, chuck it out there once every six months or four months or whatever. But each and every one of us can extend an invitation. Mm. Or even if you don't have space where you could bring someone into your home, mm. can go for a walk and grab a coffee, can yeah. do something that feels very casual. It's not It's not even doing something. It's just being mm. with someone, yeah. you know, and that's, that's us individually yeah. to tackle. Mm. We, we want I want to come on to talking about your book in a moment, um, Notes on Feminism, Being a Woman in a Male-Led Church. But just mm. before we sort of finish talking about, you know, the, the recovery and so on, classic interview question, but what would you say to your 22-year-old self now if you could go back? Um, oh, I, is, I love a cliche, go Justin. On, go on then. I was hoping <laughs> you'd bring me. me one of those. Yeah. Um, no, I um, What would I say to my 22-year-old 20, self? I, I would say that it gets better. You know, and actually that was such a dark time um, for me. And yeah, I would want that, per I would want myself to know that it gets better. But I guess if I was trying to, yeah, I don't regret the past. This mm. is a, this is a recovery phrase. Don't okay. regret the past, nor wish, nor wish to close the door on it. Mm. And I am in that place. So would I derail myself off back onto the rails, as it were, would I stop mm. that trajectory? I don't think I would. I believe God had a better, more straightforward path for me to have relationship with him. But I am where I am and I'm proud of where I am. Right. So I think I would encourage myself to keep hope, but I don't know if I would stop myself. Interesting. What yeah. I would say to somebody who is on the cusp of that now... <laughs> <laughs> which yeah. is a slightly different question yeah. Yeah. is that you must ask for help right. do not leave these things mm. like hidden in the darkness because mm. they they feel bigger they feel insurmountable mm. if they feel it feels like death is preferable and actually mm. That is not a place that anyone should be in. I know thousands of people in recovery. I don't know anyone who achieved it in isolation mm. on their own. Asking for help. There are charities like the Forward Trust that I'm doing the, the run for. There are church programs, Celebrate Recovery, the Recovery Course, Steps, Star Recovery. There's loads of them popping up that will work a sort of recovery framework with you in a Christian sense. If you're not a person who likes the idea of a spiritual element, there's smart recovery. And then there's all of those anonymous meetings. Mm. You know, there yeah. are people out there who are desperate to 
reach you to share what they've got with you. And I, I truly believe that we should never leave a man behind. So anything that I can do to facilitate that, I've got a load of links on my website. I reply to DMs from people if they're genuinely asking me about recovery <laughs> and not just like, Bitcoin. hey, you yeah. want 5,000 followers, pay me this much. You know, but like real yes, messages yes. from real people, yeah. you know, all of that stuff. It's I like... I'm, I'm busy. I've got loads of stuff on, but I would drop anything for an addict. Mm. And that I think is how mm. the majority of people in recovery feel. Yeah. Oh, there are so many people, innumerable people who are just so thankful for you. Um, for, yeah, for everything that you are. And as someone who has a... Uh, key to your front door <laughs> yes I'm one of them there you go key to my front door oh yeah. my gosh, don't share the code a... on the podcast yeah. or you'll have a lot of yeah, people so coming the around addresses. But, yeah. no. I always remember when Bob Goff put his phone number in That's his book right. yes I oh, I never wow. text him maybe I'll go back and text yeah. him maybe you should I think, but yeah. I think maybe you could sneak yours into your new book as well <laughs> Just put my phone number yeah, in it. That was just my very awkward way of trying to segue into talking about your new book. I like Bob Goff. Also have a book. Thank you, yeah. Belle. You do. Notes on feminism. Yes. Um, and what I is really interesting about your book is it's notes on feminism, being a female in a male-led church. So it's from within the church. Yes. So Christianity, when it first sort of bubbled up before it was kind of tangled with any kind of form of power, it was like, way back. Geez, like We're, we're whoa, talking whoa. first century. Great. We're talking Sorry, way yeah. back. Yeah, yeah. Um, it was kind of dismissed as the religion of women, children and slaves. And it was kind mm. of like, because oh, that's who it was, we're gravitating towards mm. it. Now... Imagine that, that with all the freedoms mm -hmm. that Jesus afforded them. Imagine. Why? So weird that they actually really resonated with that and thought that was someone worth following. <laughs> exactly. Wild. But now, yes. But now it's perceived as the opposite. It's the I white know. man's religion. Yeah. And actually it's a bit of a, or, you know, it's perceived to be a bit of a hostile place oh, um, for women to be. So yeah. your book, Why is Christianity? Why was it? Why is it good news for women from within the camp? Yeah. And you haven't asked the question that is the cliche question, like, why I, why did you write the book? Yeah. But effectively, I feel like um, Louis Farouk and the commissioning uh, producers for Netflix have done the dirty on Christianity because I'm just watching documentary after documentary of effectively cults or, mm, or very sure. vicious groups of people mm. who are making these wild statements mm. about people's place in the world, particularly women. You see these sort mm. of like multiple marriages and subjugation and one sort of male mm. leader, mm. you know, and, and in the name of Jesus. Mm. And it is infuriating. And as somebody who came to faith properly, like whilst I sort of was culturally Christian and dabbled with it and had a faith as a child, but sort of adult faith at 25, mm. it was a huge barrier to me because I'm like, so what? I'm going to walk in here and suddenly all of these things that are important to me, I'm going to have to let go of in favour of bowing to the authority yeah. of a man who I don't know or mm. know if I respect or anything mm. like that. And actually when I say that, I don't mean Jesus. I mm. mean a church leader because mm. the vast majority of male church yeah. leaders. I think that's but I would really have felt the same about Jesus anyway because I didn't know him yeah. at the time. But no, I think what you're experiencing is really common. Yeah. I think a lot of women have yeah. that thought of like, Jesus might be appealing. Oh, but, but I, do, uh, do I really have to give up? What about the whole? All of, yeah. all of my empowerment <laughs> for him. Exactly. So I, I do believe that that is a misconception. Mm -hmm. uh, if you look at 
in the book, I did a whole a sort of chapter, which was literally what the world said at the time, because context is so important mm. about women versus what Jesus said about women at the time. And it's just like example, example, example of times where he championed them, where they were invited into spaces that they weren't classically welcomed in, mm. where he he gave them space, he gave them dignity, he honoured them, he respected them in, in ways that were absolutely remarkable. And like, as you say, like a little bit weird maybe to the sort of powerful mm. men of the time, because why would you invest your energy in people with so little influence? Mm-hmm. But that's not Jesus, right? And we see that across the board. Um, and I think I think it's just a shame that people think it's either or that people think that they have to choose between championing, celebrating, listening to women and Christianity, because when Christianity is done right, it, it only affords more respect Mm. to women than is, than classically is. Yeah. How did you eventually sort of come to terms then with these feelings that you had as you entered the church of what do I have to give up and so on? And, and what, I, I suppose, you know, do you, do you kind of wear the label feminism, feminist, and what? How does your faith inform that? If so, yeah, I think it depends on who's asking. Mm. Um, like, who could ask where you'd say no? Who could <laughs> ask where I'd say no? I definitely play down the extent to which I like the label in order to get some people on side. Right, sure. but I also just because it sometimes for some people comes with a certain, certain yeah, baggage. It, that's basically. it. Yeah. Shut yeah. us down. Yeah. You know, yeah. like. Yeah oh, she's a feminist, all right then, well, you know, she's not doing her bit for keeping the women's Gillette razors sales Mm. up and, you know, and is it even environmentally friendly to burn your bra? And then that's it. And that's the conversation done. But, you know, obviously feminism is about so much more than that. Um, What I found speaking to women in the church, and I I tried all sort of denominations, ethnicities, cultural backgrounds, um, is that... I'd say like 70% of the people I spoke to said that they probably wouldn't want to use the word feminist. Mm. But then when I asked about their beliefs, their ideology, how, what, how they felt women should be treated, they basically listed a sort of mm. feminist yeah. man- manifesto, yeah. you know. Um, so I think the word is problematic now. And one of the conclusions in the book is, is basically like, I don't care what you call yourself, but mm. I do need you to be looking out for some of these things which are still not fixed in society and Mm. in the church and have a negative impact on women. So whether we use the word I'm indifferent to, obviously I put it on the cover. They tried to put the word patriarchy on the cover as well and I was like, surely we all agree that's a step too far. Like we want people people to buy my book. We want people to buy my book, guys, you know. Lauren's got to eat. (laughs) (laughs) But but I mean, that's it. Unfortunately, some words are so loaded these days that some people will just write someone off if they they use that that terminology as well. Exactly. But, so it's kind of stealing past that to kind of help people see that actually you yeah. know, we need to have a more nuanced conversation. And for a long time when I was growing in my faith, growing in my personal relationship with Jesus, my understanding of Christianity, I did believe, truly, I believed that Christianity was sexist, but I was here anyway. Right. And yeah. I, I thought like you just have to make compromises. Presumably that that means somewhere along the line I'm wrong, but I Mm. don't know where and I just don't want to scratch at that, Mm. you know, Mm. surface. I don't want to open Pandora's box and find out that actually, you know, 
when it comes to it, God prizes men more than women and I shouldn't be invited to give a sermon in a church. And, mm. you know, I just thought, keep your head down, do what you're doing. People are inviting you to speak in a church. Don't think too much about the theology, <laughs> you know, and just get it done. And I said that effectively to my spiritual advisor and she was like, you can look into this. You can research this. You can pick this apart. You will not find God on the wrong side of it. And that was it. There's no wrong side when it comes to where God is on it. And I did. And I started to reframe what the mm. Bible, what I believed the Bible was saying. And there's this whole, I, you know, I'm not a theologian. I'm a journalist. And I've pulled together what I believe to be some of the, not all of, obviously, the pertinent things that we can be having a conversation about mm. in an accessible way. Of course, there's Bible and theology in the book and in my reasoning. Um, but I was, and I know that there's a lot of discussion around like how we're applying context and, and where do we stop and what do we take and what do we leave and all of those kinds of things. But actually, I found it phenomenally helpful mm. to hear things that at surface level, sound horrific like a woman having to marry her rapist yeah right and then look into it and go that is so far from what god wants for any woman and it is not what what we see there is yeah. not actually the outcome that he thinks is best and healthiest for anyone mm. there's misunderstanding around that and that was really yeah freeing for me. A, a, a lot of it often is just about coming to be a more wise reader of the bible and mm. and seeing things in their context and, mm. and so on but unfortunately we live in a culture where you know the meme that someone will see is you know pull out verse out of context and say this is what christianity is so how do you i mean how would you persuade a non-christian friend who maybe sees christianity that way yeah and says i, I can't believe you're going to church misogynistic patriarchal place um what would what would be like i don't know your elevator pitch to someone oh, to say like hey it's it's not what you think it is. Yeah, I effect. suppose sixty thousand words doesn't count yeah. as an elevator pitch. <laughs> I mean, you could give it. Yeah, well, a lot of my non-Christian friends do feel obliged to buy books I write. So, I don't, if, whether they read them or not is very much <laughs> a different. On the yeah, they're there. They've done their bit. Yeah. Um, I would say that Christians don't let Christians ruin Christ. Is what <laughs> I would a say. Great phrase. It's so easy. Mm for people to come at the Bible, I don't want to say with their own agenda, because I believe a lot of people who don't agree with me on issues around women in the Bible do so from a place of, of truly wanting to respect yeah. what the word is. And I would rather, I, I would go to a church where women mm. weren't allowed to lead. I don't see that as, as a sticking point. Mm. I would rather be in a church that stuck so closely to what they believe the Bible said in a loving way and therefore wouldn't let a, a woman lead than one that believed the Bible said a woman shouldn't lead but thought, well, everyone's going to shout at us, mm. so we'll do it anyway. Mm. You know, yeah, like right. that's – I and I've got a friend um, who is – gay who's same-sex attracted and his stance is he goes to a church which wouldn't marry him even mm. though there are plenty in London mm. that would mm -hmm. uh, because he says my primary is incredibly solid and robust theology and on everything other than that right. I I agree That's with them so right. I don't want to That's go somewhere fair. that compromises on my faith and we just live knowing that we mutually disagree and that's okay.
you know? So and, it's, and that, yeah. And that's, for me, that, that's, that's a very mature way of approaching it in the sense that it's easy to live in a culture where, you know, we cancel someone because they don't agree on that every aspect. But if you're, you're describing essentially what it is like to live in a community where you do get diverse yeah. opinions, and, yeah. but yet you can still live alongside someone yeah. and see the, the thing that's bigger than the, the things that divide us. And, yeah. And that's I, I, kind yeah. of rare in, I, in our I, culture, sadly. I would love to hope it's not rare in the church. I think that what we see, we're naive if we think what we see in the world isn't mm. represented in the church. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think that's really valuable. And what I would love from people reading this book is more questions, more conversation, more empathy. Um, but certainly if it was used as a tool for increased rupture, for increased division, that would be a real shame. Mm -hmm. You know, I believe in egalitarian marriage, which I make clear in the book, but for me to say that a complementarian model of marriage, and so egalitarian would be where a husband and wife are equally responsible for for making decisions and it is is purely collaborative, whereas a complementarian um, relationship would see um, to different degrees, depending on mm. on the couple and where they stand, the man as the head of the house, and ultimately the buck stopping with mm. him. But any sensible couple would see that there is still a huge amount of collaboration, mm. and you know it's not just sort of charging ahead with a sort of despot at the dinner table. Um, but for me to say that a complementarian model in marriage doesn't work is just is fundamentally not true because I don't know I haven't seen stats on it but the vast majority of marriages um that we've had historically and that we see around the world now you know the dynamic is that the man is the head of the family and and I see phenomenal marriages that work in that way it's not a model that I think would work for me and it's not a model that I think we have to adhere to but does it work? Yes, of mm. course it does. It has been used, though, mm. as with anything that can be very fruitful, can be wonderful. You know, it has been used as as an excuse for abuse. I, I mentioned some of the things that I had experienced as a child seen around me mm. in a church context. You know, that would have definitely been, you know, my wife should be obedient and here are, here are the consequences if you want. And that is fundamentally wrong. Sure. E- anyone who adheres to a complementarian model who doesn't think that wrong, that's wrong just hasn't really grasped marriage or mm-hmm. faith or or many 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 other things yeah, you know sure so you would would you say that from going from from being at a place where you thought christianity is sexist but i'll i'll cross that bridge when i come to it or never or <laughs> never depending on how long i can avoid it have you got to a place now where you're like no christianity fuels my feminism oh my gosh i just think like I just, I think it is so empowering. Yeah. I think that the respect and honour and time and value that God puts on women, Mm. not obviously not exclusively, but like it's, it is exciting. It is encouraging. It, it catalyzes so much of what I do. I feel like it's, Mm. it's, it's a springboard now in a way that I didn't feel before. And I think that we as church get it wrong, but I no longer believe that God does. And how humble of me. <laughs> <laughs> Nailed that one. Um, we, we, we're sadly, you know, the hours flown by and we're, we're running out of time. But what I 
whenever I see your name at the top of an article, Lauren, I click it immediately because I, you're Justin. so... Justin. Yeah, no, I'm, not, I'm not just saying that, honestly, because... It's great to meet a fan. It's always going to be... Because you, you are so good at pinpointing what's going on in popular culture, especially mm. Gen Z stuff. I feel a bit like that's... I'm, I'm sort of... It, it's all a bit alien to me sometimes. Mm. Uh, I sound like an old fart, as was one of our guests put it earlier no. today. But um, but you you just you just seem to have the ability to <laughs> to kind of understand, read, communicate that culture. Uh, so this show is going out in the early part of 2024. Yes. Um, what what do you see as the kind of cultural trends that you're probably going to be writing and thinking and speaking about? What 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 are the ones that seem to be getting louder? What what are we kind of craving? What are you going to be mm. looking into perhaps in the Ooh. in the coming year in 2024? Yeah, I think uh, well, look, obvious answers are the sort of sense of individualism and AI and da, da 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 and all of that kind of stuff. I think if we're talking about a generation that's younger than me that aren't policymakers, they're just doing their thing on TikTok, you know, whatever. I think that the biggest challenge to my values and the life that I believe that that those young people could have access to um, is, and actually Bella and I have spoken about this before, are things like sort of mystical curiosity that isn't mm. directed towards Christ, right? right. Mm. So tarot cards charging up your um, your crystals on Rich the... Talk. Which witch talk? Thank yeah. you very much. And witch lit yeah. is a is yeah, the new sort of phenomenon. Yeah, mm. I think I this probably isn't advisable across the board for Christians. Mm. But there's virtually nothing I don't engage with that is in the mainstream and mm. in the secular. Mm. So I've read witch lit books. Mm. I watch Love Island. Um, you know, or oh, hands behind my back. Sometimes you just have to. Someone's someone's got to take someone's one for the team. Do it for you know, Justin. <laughs> um, you know, and and all of those different things. If it's big culturally in terms of a book or a TV yeah. show, what I want to know. Yeah. I want to know why. Got I want to know why people things. are. Yeah. yeah. I want to know why people are interested. Yeah. Uh, it may entertain me on a superficial level. It may inform my understanding of what people are craving and, and the way that they're going. So to be honest, I think the biggest driver of our attention is going to be um, how the algorithms continue to develop. But I saw something online that showed the difference between viewing hours, you know, how many billion yeah. on mm. Netflix and on TikTok. And that is so much, so much, no so way. many more minutes that people are spending looking at, wow. at TikTok. Um, and we thought and, Netflix was addictive. I mean, no. Yeah. And I remember, was it the CEO of Netflix who said the only mm. thing he was competing with was sleep? Not anymore, love. <laughs> Not anymore. Not anymore, yeah. love. What's weird about TikTok as well is it's what, four hours of one minute clips? Yeah. Well, that's it. It's so yeah, the yeah, maths yeah. on that is unfathomable. Exactly. It's a wonder that Vine had to shut down because it's, you know, they were ahead of their time, <laughs> but, weren't they? Well, we're glad you're. You're watching TikTok for us and yeah. and working out. Someone's got to do it. Thank you for watching is. Married at First Sight for us all. Uh, and I, I've really taken the hit on Married at First Sight and actually Below Deck as well, all sort of 20 <laughs> odd seasons. And you're welcome, you know. Thank you. On behalf I, of us all. I look all, forward to re you. reading the articles this year. <laughs> um, thank you for, for re-enchanting as well. Just the whole area of sobriety, recovery. Mm. Um, it's been wonderful to hear your story yeah. as well today, Lauren. So thanks for being our guest. Thank you for having me.